All right, hey everyone, welcome back to Tina Apologetics. Pumped to join us today to have Emerson Green from Counter Apologetics. We're going to be talking about his devil's advocate advocate case for theism. So Emerson, what's up, man? How are you doing? Hey, good. How are you doing? Good, good. I, I feel like you're making like a theistic case, but then like your background's like dark and like your face is kind of like dark and you can't see everything that's going on. So like Emerson looks like the bad guy right now, but he's making a case for the good side, right? So something like that. Yeah, I gotta turn. I gotta figure out how to turn on the brightness of my camera. I got this new webcam. And like mm-hmm. when I debated John Buck, I, I took the atheist side on that one. Like my camera was like ludicrously dark. It looked like I, John was like, are you doing this on purpose? <laughs> but yeah. yeah, I guess when I, I plugged it in, the settings were like wonky, but yeah. mm-hmm. Well, today, um, besides for criticizing Emerson's appearance, <laughs> we're going to be talking about um, your devil's advocate case for theism. So you want to talk a little bit about like what went into like formulating this case and how, how it all got started in your mind? Yeah, I mean, I guess I'd just been wondering about, you know, steel manning theism and like, what's the best case for theism? Like, you know, I don't think theism is ridiculous. Like, I don't think it's like crazy to be a theist or anything. So I was trying to think about why I think that theists are, you know, rationally permitted to hold their beliefs. And um, I've had the same like list of arguments for a long time that I'd always mentioned, but I'd never tried to flesh them out, you know, and like write a case where, you know, it's not just like a 10 second summary of the argument. So unfortunately I didn't get to cover everything. Like I didn't get to cover the moral knowledge argument or the argument from moral agents, but um, yeah, I did get to cover a couple things and I surprised myself with thinking that widespread theistic belief is actually decent evidence for theism. Like I would not have guessed that I would feel that way once I looked more into it, but um yeah, I mean, it was just trying to steal man theism and, you know, kind of parallel. I've been trying to think of like the most plausible version of Christianity. Like, is there a kind of version of Christianity that in my mind, like stands a chance of being true? And mm-hmm. um, yeah, so it's it's part of a broader thing. It's like ongoing. And now I'm more focused on um, Christianity and seeing if there's a version of Christianity that doesn't seem like crazy to me. Yeah. Um Maybe we'll talk about that at the end, what version that might be for you. Um, we don't really have much of a plan going into this. So this might be like 20 minutes. This might be like four <laughs> hours. Um, hopefully not, because I have like 90 minutes um, is what I shoot for. But um, so let's just get into your case. So the first thing you talked about in your debate was like the existence of consciousness. So like what was the argument that you brought that was like in favor of theism there? Well, an unfortunate thing I've learned from doing this is that whatever your first argument is, that's the one that people talk about the most. So Mm -hmm. this was not my main argument. I put this one first because it's the simplest one and because it takes 10 seconds to explain, but it it like generated a ton of discussion. I'm like, guys, I don't even want to talk about this argument. Like I want to talk about psychophysical harmony and widespread theistic belief. But anyway, so uh, yeah, unfortunately I've learned that, but the argument is it was developed by Jeff Lauder, who's like an atheist uh, philosopher Mm -hmm. of religion. Um, basically it's just theism entails the existence of consciousness and atheism doesn't and naturalism doesn't. And if, you know, an observation is entailed by one hypothesis and not another, then it's just kind of trivial that that observation favors the first one over the second one, because it Mm -hmm. assigns a higher probability to that observation than, uh, the competing hypothesis. So if we, if we're drawing up two columns, you know, like what would we expect to see in the world if theism is true? Like what would be the features of reality, like, you know, broadly construed, including God, including nature, like including everything. So we have the theistic column and we have the naturalistic column. In the theistic column, we have consciousness right away because God is a conscious being. But consciousness isn't really a sure thing in a naturalistic world. So 
um, consciousness, and of, of course we don't observe God's consciousness, but we do know that consciousness is a feature of our world. And it's just not really surprising that it's a feature of our world if theism is true in the same way that it's a little surprising if naturalism is true, especially if you buy into source physicalism or something like that, like how Draper conceives of naturalism. So consciousness is a little bit unexpected if everything is fundamentally physical. Um, I actually think if everything was fundamentally physical, there never would be consciousness. But um, I mean, setting that aside, the point is that like if God exists, then of course, consciousness exists. And it's not really surprising that there would be something like human consciousness in the same way that if fundamental reality is physical, it's not really surprising that there are physical things, you know, like my table is physical, the earth is physical, and fundamental reality is physical, according to like many atheists. So I don't know, it just seems kind of straightforward to me, like consciousness is evidence favoring theism, because theism entails the existence of consciousness, and uh, naturalism doesn't. Mm hmm. Yeah, I mean, I share the intuition with you, Emerson. It's just pretty straightforward. Like, if God exists, then, like, God is conscious. And, like, there's probability of consciousness on theism is one. And on atheism, it's less than one. So, mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think there's really much you can do about it. Like, I think if you – now, obviously, I'm a Christian and biased, and I'm, like, trying to destroy you <laughs> and everything. But, like, I mean, for me, it's, like, pretty straightforward. Like, there's not much you can do except say, like, this is evidence for theism. So, like, in your mind, like, how much would this move you towards theism? Like, is it a lot? Is it a little bit? Like, wh where is No, it, it wouldn't really move me at all. Like, um but, but like it just it barely moves the needle at all it just seems like a fun argument that that in my mind kind of obviously works but um there's like a symmetrical argument that you might argue like cancels it out or something like if theism entails consciousness because god is conscious then by the same token naturalism entails the natural world you know or like you mm -hmm. know if, if you think source physicalism is the right characterization of naturalism then naturalism entails the physical world so the physical world is not surprising on naturalism but you know, maybe God wouldn't create the physical world um, on theism. So those seem kind of like symmetrical arguments to me. Neither of them, they, they both rise to the level of um, technically correct, <laughs> but like not really moving the needle very much. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, maybe I would issue that as a response, but that's not to say the original argument doesn't work though. Yeah. I mean, the only thing you could probably say to that argument is just wondering if naturalism entails anything, but you know. Um, yeah, yeah it, okay. it definitely so, entails things. <laughs> so... Then let's go to your second argument, which is psychophysical harmony. So we use all these big fancy words now. So what's your argument from psychophysical harmony that you brought forward? Um, so it's basically like a fine tuning argument, like, um, but it's it's not like cosmological fine tuning arguments. It's it's one that I personally like more. It clicks with me more than cosmological fine tuning arguments. So um, uh, it's sort of more grounded in stuff that makes sense to me i guess so mm -hmm. like uh yeah so if you're unfamiliar with it just think of a fine-tuning argument just focused on consciousness specifically so um uh all you have to do i guess to get it off the ground is like imagine the physical world remains fixed and the internal sorry i feel like a hair in my eye it's driving me insane but um that's evidence for atheism but um, just evidence you need to get a haircut <laughs> um these minor inconveniences, but, you know, so like the physical world, you know, we, we can sort of draw this at least conceptual distinction between the physical world and our mental lives. So this doesn't require that you reject physicalism or anything like that. Um, you know, physicalists, at least um, most physicalists will accept that you can draw like a conceptual distinction between your internal mental life and sort of the external physical world. And all you have to do to get this argument off the ground is just imagine that the external physical world remains fixed basically but the internal phenomenal world is varied so it's um 
you know, unpleasant or um, just otherwise disharmonious or totally neutral. But um, the point is the internal experiences don't rationalize or make sense of the behavior. So, you know, I go through this kind of aversion behavior when I feel pain. Um, but you can imagine the physical world remaining fixed. So I still have the same aversion behavior. So I will still be behaving in an adaptive way. So natural selection will go on just as it did before. But internally, I'll be feeling the opposite thing or I'll be feeling something that makes no sense. You know, so like these are all conceivable scenarios. Um, there's some reason that these internal phenomenal states that I have, like pain, um, are correlated with that kind of aversive behavior. And we're attributing those to psychophysical laws. So all we're doing is imagining that we're varying those psychophysical laws and saying that, hey, maybe the internal conscious state that's correlated with this brain activity, maybe that brain activity, that physical brain activity could have been correlated with a different mental state. And it would be a mental state that like didn't make any sense. Like it didn't rationalize or justify that behavior that was that was going on. And this applies to physicalists as well. You don't get out of this, but you don't have to adopt any particular view and philosophy of mind to, uh, you know, get the psychophysical harmony problem off the ground. The only people who are exempt from this are a group of physicalists called a priori physicalists. We don't have to go into that now, but they're a minority. Like even most physicalists don't adopt that particular view. Um, yeah. So does that make sense so far? It's sort of like, mm -hmm. you know, things are correlated in this fortunate way. And they could have been correlated in this disharmonious, unfortunate way. And, you know, natural selection is not really the kind of thing that can get you out of this problem. That's sort of the first thing that comes to most people's mind. The thing that's ultimately responsible for correlating the physical states and the phenomenal states would be these psychophysical laws, these fundamental psychophysical laws. Once again, doesn't matter which view in philosophy of mind you adopt. You can be a panpsychist or a dualist or an epiphenomenalist or a physicalist. It really doesn't matter. Um, mm -hmm. The point is that we can imagine these things varying and uh yeah i mean i mean i guess we can pause there for a moment if you have any uh pushback so i'm just trying to track it right now so the idea is like we have this um maybe it's like this pain sensation of like emerson having a hair in his eye and it's causing him discomfort yeah. um so he has like the the psychological state of like feeling like pain or discomfort or something like that and the question is well maybe like on um, like natural selection or something like this he could have experienced like an amazing moment of joy every time a hair like goes into his eye. Um, so this mystery of like why these things are like correlated to like what exactly um, the, like what the actual sensations are. Is that, is that kind of the argument? Yeah. I mean, the argument is just like when I need to get something out of my eye, like I could still engage in that adaptive behavior and the internal phenomenal world could have been different, you know? Mm -hmm. So like I, I have this experience of like annoyance where I'm like, I need to get this thing out of my eye. And, um, the point of the uh, authors of this paper who developed this argument, Dustin Crummett and Brian Cutter, their point is like, you know, you can imagine all that adaptive behavior going on while the internal phenomenal world is different um, because natural selection really only cares about your behavior, you know, like, it, mm -hmm. so the fact that you have an internal state that kind of harmoniously matches up where it's like, you know, uh, when you need to remove a hair from your eye, like you kind of have an experience that rationalizes the behavior of like removing the hair from your eye. They're saying like that conceivably could have been different. Mm -hmm. And um, there's not really any known widely recognized natural mechanism that can affect psychophysical laws 
so that we have the more valuable set of psychophysical laws. So we have like a very valuable set of psychophysical laws. It's like fine tuned so that we have relatively decent, harmonious, um, you know, lives. And, you know, there are some people who are exempt from this people who have like extreme mental illnesses, um, people who are like schizophrenics, like they suffer from psychophysical disharmony, mm-hmm. but, um, by and large, like the experiences we have appropriately match up with the behavior that we have. And, um, yeah, that's, uh, that's valuable. And it's a little surprising, you know, it could have been different. So, you know, when, whenever I'm talking about this, I n- I'm never sure if I sound like I'm standing in front of like a cork board with a bunch of red string, or if I'm making like <laughs> rational sense here. But like, <laughs> it, I mean, again, the basic point is just you can imagine the physical world remaining fixed. Well, the internal world is like, you know, just static or something, you know, it doesn't Mm -hmm. have to be uh, something that's like a pain, pleasure, inversion scenario. It can be like, you know, you've just got this straight, like monotonous experience internally and externally, you're doing all the same stuff. So um, that would be an intrinsically very simple set of psychophysical laws. So, you know, it seems like it would be more probable, right? Like, you know, there's just this one experience. Um, so the point is there are many, many ways things could have varied in this terrible disharmonious way or in this kind of hedonically neutral, but nonetheless, um, way that th- we're, we're fortunate to have avoided, you know, the mm-hmm. vast like array of, um, you know, conceivable possibilities here. And, uh, some of those possibilities, it's not just that the disharmonious scenarios outnumber the harmonious scenarios. It's that most of the disharmonious scenarios are kind of intrinsically more probable you know, like, so that's an important piece as well. So it's, it's actually kind of improbable that we ended up with this valuable set of psychophysical laws. So in order to get out of it, you're going to need some kind of thing, some kind of like, uh, you know, like natural teleology or axiarchism or God, maybe like something that has an interest in bringing about valuable states of affairs, you know, Mm -hmm. because impersonal mathematical quantitative abstract laws there's no tendency towards things of value, you know, like those are totally indifferent, like physical laws are totally indifferent. And um, yeah, I, I mean, the way that naturalists tend to think of physical, there are many ways to think of physical laws, but not many ways where like the valuable set of physical laws is more probable than like the disvaluable set of physical laws. Like theism is kind of uniquely able to handle fortunate outcomes like that you know that's why the fine-tuning argument is so popular because it's like hey we've got this valuable state of affairs it could have conceivably been this disvaluable state of affairs Mm -hmm. and um god is the kind of being that can bring things about because they're good you know whereas like impersonal laws or brute facts or whatever like those aren't the kinds of things that bring things about because it would be good to bring it about Mm -hmm. so psychophysical harmony is a good thing so why can't someone just push back and be like, well, like evolution, natural selection, like this explains anything. You hinted at it earlier, but I'm just curious, like, why is evolution not enough to like explain sake of physical harmony? Yeah, you know, it's difficult because we're kind of like going more fundamental than natural selection. Like hmm. once we're talking about natural selection, we're already way past the point that this argument kind of focuses on. So this argument, so natural selection, we can agree has no effect over physical laws, you know, like natural selection can't select for different um, values in the core theory or something like that. So like fundamental physical laws, natural selection has no effect over that, you know, so psychophysical laws 
are sort of in that same fundamental realm where it's like, you know, natural selection has nothing to do with which set of psychophysical laws obtain. So there's really no, like these psychophysical laws are kind of ontologically prior to natural selection. So natural selection can only deal with whatever it's given in this mm -hmm. case. But yeah, I mean, we typically think like, hey, my experiences are causally efficacious and my experiences are the things that motivate me to do this adaptive thing and to avoid this maladaptive thing. Um, and I think that's right. But the whole point of the psychophysical harmony argument is that those internal states could have been correlated with different behavior. So, I mean, maybe this will make more sense if we like get into um, the most uh, predominant version of physicalism, a posteriori physicalism, um, or maybe it'll just make things even more horribly confused. But um, the, the point is like, they will admit that you can um, conceive of like varying mental states, I guess. So like one difference between a priori and a posteriori physicalists is that a priori physicalists will deny that you can conceive of something like color inversion or zombies or something like that. Whereas a posteriori physicalists who are sane in comparison admit that you can conceive of something like color inversion, you know? So like, what if my red is your green, you know, that type mm -hmm. of thing. Um, or like, uh, can we conceive of like a physical duplicate of a human being that has no internal life or something like that? So a posteriori physicalists will say, yeah, I can, you know, there's this kind of conceptual dualism here. Like, I don't think there's an actual ontological dualism. Like there's not a dualism of substances, but yeah, we have like this concept of phenomenal redness. And then we've got this physical concept of like a brain state, you know, that um, correlates with redness and like, yeah, these intuitively seem like different things. Um, but there's still just physical stuff there. So, you know, an a posteriori physicalist will totally grant that you can conceive of something like color inversion. Um, so once you like, we only need that really, we, we, we need our foot in the door only to that extent. And then you can get the argument off the ground because it's like, okay, well, these physical states could have been correlated with a different mental state. You know, like that's kind of a key part of the psychophysical harmony argument. So um, a posteriori physicalists, like they, they grant, you know, in, in other circumstances that you can totally conceive of, uh, you know, your brain, this particular brain state being correlated with a different mental state. Um, and if you can conceive of it, then I think you need to have some kind of explanation for why it's this way instead of some other way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> I, you know, like I said, when I talk about this argument, I can't tell if I sound like, um, if I'm making any sense at all. So. <laughs> well, it's tricky. Like I definitely like, this is not my like forte and like understanding like, um, the philosophy or anything like that, but I, I think I'm generally tracking with you. So I'm curious, Emerson, how would you respond? Well, actually, first, how would you explain this to like a five-year-old or maybe like a 10? <laughs> if you need to like a 10-year-old, how do you explain sake of physical harmony to a 10-year-old? Uh, you couldn't. <laughs> 15, 15. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, the problem is this, this argument only comes about once you've thought about certain issues. It's not, I mean, maybe someone who's a really gifted communicator could explain it to like a 10 year old or a 15 year old or something, mm -hmm. um, but I can barely explain it to adults. So <laughs> I don't know, but I mean, look, as long as you know what the fine tuning argument is, then mm -hmm. you're, you're good. You know, it's like, Hey, it's the fine tuning argument, but it's specifically focused on consciousness. Like, you know, we're lucky 
that uh, our internal lives appropriately match up with our physical behavior. You know, it could have been different and it could have been quite disharmonious, you know, and it, it's actually there are very there, there are way more ways this could have turned out disharmoniously than harmoniously. And a lot of those disharmonious scenarios are more probable, you know, so mm. it's like we have this extremely improbable set of psychophysical laws improbable because they're fewer, you know, and the disharmonious scenarios are more numerous and also because the valuable ones are intrinsically less probable. You know, at least that's how the argument goes. So um, we have this fortunate, unlikely situation that we found ourselves in, you know, so it's like we've, you know, won the cosmic lottery or something like that. And uh, we need some kind of explanation for that. You know, mm -hmm. it kind of cries out for an explanation when something that's so improbable happens. Oh, and it just so happens to be a very valuable, improbable thing that happened. Mm. I think that's good. Emphasizing like we're lucky that our minds kind of match up with our physical behavior. Um, I think it's a good, like very short summary. And obviously there's a lot more complexity to it. But yeah, I think that's good. Mm -hmm. So like, how would you respond to like a physical harmony then, Emerson? Is this what keeps you up at night? Or um, yeah, I mean, it's kind of forcing me to explore some weird alternatives, you know, until someone comes up with a way to kind of undermine this argument. I mean, the thing is, this argument is really complex, you know, and I haven't done justice to it just like speaking extemporaneously and kind of like going all over the place. But um, uh, the the paper by Dustin Crummett and Brian Cutter is like really good. It's, you know, kind of complicated, but it's worth the effort. Um, so there are many places at which this argument could go wrong, but I just don't see where it is. You know, so the thing is they acknowledge in their paper, you know, they're both theists, obviously, um, but they acknowledge in their paper that like there are the, psychophysical harmony is equally good evidence for other hypotheses that are non-theistic. It's just those other hypotheses that are non-theistic are just kind of weird and they're not standard, you know? So like I'm talking about things like natural teleology. So most naturalists are not going to believe that there's genuine teleology out in the world where there's this kind of directedness towards things of value. Like they're going to think that any appearance of purpose is illusory. And one way you could get out of this argument is saying that like, no, just in this naturalistic world, there is actual purpose, you know, like there is actual directedness towards valuable outcomes. So this is something that like Thomas Nagel has defended and I'm a big Thomas Nagel fan for anyone who knows me, but um, you know, so I'm attracted to that. Someone like Philip Goff is uh, writing a book right now where he's saying that like, you know, the traditional God doesn't exist, but he thinks that the universe is kind of saturated with purpose in this way. Um, so if you imagine like, this is what I mean where I say I'm sort of being pushed into kind of weird places. Mm -hmm. So like I used to defend the hypothesis of indifference all the time. Like that was sort of my go-to way of talking about atheism versus theism. Like on theism, you've got this being who, you know, is unsurpassably great and perfectly loving. And he knows the number of hairs on your head. Like he's intensely interested in human and earthly affairs. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have the hypothesis of indifference where fundamental reality is just kind of indifferent to human affairs and earthly affairs. You know, it's indifferent to pain and pleasure. Mm -hmm. And that kind of explains why we have this morally random world, you know, like kind of a mix of pain and pleasure. Like I, to me, the world seems morally random. Like there seems to be this weird mixture of pain and pleasure. And if the world is indifferent to us, then that kind of makes sense. You know, whereas if theism is true, then you have to come up with all these crazy theodicies and reasons that tries to make like, you know, you have to come up with some kind of rationalization of the 
kind of suffering, the degree of suffering and the distribution of suffering that we see in the world. And to me, that seems like like a doomed project, which is basically why I'm not a theist. You know, it basically comes down to the problem of evil. Like, I don't really see a good rationalization for the kind degree and distribution of evil that we see in the world. And um, indifference seems to make quick work of that. You know, it's like, well, yeah, it's morally random, you know. Um, but the problem is stuff like psychophysical harmony, you know, like where we have this improbable and valuable outcome. And that's kind of what pushes me towards thinking that maybe the universe is not totally indifferent towards valuable outcomes. Um, and I'm trying to make that work in sort of a non-theistic framework. So that's kind of where I'm at right now. So again, if you picture this spectrum of indifference, where on the one end we have total and utter indifference, and then the other end we have an unsurpassably great being of perfect love who knows the number of hairs on your head and is intensely interested in human affairs. So I'm still way over on the side that's closer to indifference, you know, because mm -hmm. I think there's a ton of space between those two poles and it's mostly unexplored. So I'm still closer to the indifference side of things, but I'm not like fully over on the like utter indifference side of things, if that makes sense. I'm like slowly migrating, like maybe 10%, 20%, like mm -hmm. over in that direction, but definitely yeah. not over to the theistic side. Mm -hmm. So is this like a recent thing? Like, I feel like it was like 18 million years ago when we debated the problem of evil or whatever it was. Um, like, <laughs> is this a recent thing that's been moving you? Like, even like since like that debate? Because I obviously like proved you're totally crazy. And, you know, um. Um, I mean, so I've, like I said, I've always liked Thomas Nagel and um, I loved Mind and Cosmos. And um, I uh, that's where he talks about some of these things. And I think have always flirted with this, you know, it's always been like, oh yeah, maybe natural tele teleology or something. But um, yeah, the psychophysical harmony, this type of fine tuning argument has really kind of pushed me into, okay, I can't just flirt with this anymore. I have to actually flesh this out. Like, is this a viable hypothesis or not? Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it is kind of a recent thing. Um, like I said, the cosmological fine tuning arguments just don't really click with me. Like they, I, they don't really I'm not finding myself being compelled by them um, mm -hmm. because they seem to involve these like kind of wild modal claims that I just can't find myself being persuaded by. Like, you know, I think that Sean Carroll did a good job critiquing this like a long time ago. And I, I don't know, like I said, the cosmological fine tuning arguments just don't really hit me the way they seem to hit some people. But this particular fine tuning argument, the psychophysical fine tuning argument seems kind of grounded in, stuff that makes more sense to me you know it's like grounded in our lives as conscious beings and mm -hmm. that's more tangible to me and i kind of it just yeah like it clicks with me more but yeah it's kind of a recent thing so the thing i'm defending is something i've been calling indifference or something near enough so um there was this philosopher of mine called Wygon kim who defend who called one of his books physicalism or something near enough and that's kind of how i feel about indifference now where it's like hey i'm still kind of on that indifference side of the fence but it's not exactly indifference, you know, I'm, I'm, I think that there has to be something like teleology in our world. And I'm, I'm currently kind of exploring that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. I think that's great. So let's go to your third argument then Emerson, which is like the widespread three theistic belief. So what's going on there with this argument? You know, this one, I, I don't know what it is about this argument. People just um, go kind of crazy about it. And it seems like I like it because it's kind of in line with common sense, you know, um, in some ways. Like, so the basic point is just this. If most people believe something, if most human beings believe something now and they have in the past, 
Um, virtually everything that answers to that description is a true belief. So if we're talking about, this is basically about the prevalence and persistence of certain beliefs that human beings have. And if a belief is prevalent and it's persistent, you know, through the ages, then that belief is probably true. Virtually all the beliefs that answer to that description are true. And theism fits into that category. <laughs> so like most people believe in God and most people have believed in God for a long time. We have evidence from psychology and sociology that seems to suggest that. Like the, the thing I referenced specifically was the, um, I think it's called the Cognition, Theology and Religion Project, which is directed by Justin Barrett, who, you, you know, you've heard about the like hyperactive agency detection device thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So he, he coined that term. He was, I think he was like the main pioneer of that research. So, he, you know, based on that kind of research, he's uh, in, in this, pr this project that I just referenced, this was like a massive research endeavor. And their conclusion was that, you know, theism has been, it wasn't like a recent thing in, in human history. It's something that's been kind of prevalent for a long time. It's something that our cognitive faculties naturally produce. So, you know, some people find that to be implausible, but I would say, you know, take it up with Justin Barrett. Like, <laughs> it was a pretty, uh, you know, pretty well-funded research endeavor that, you know, is this cross-cultural analysis that involved dozens and dozens of researchers across dozens of countries. You know, it was extremely well-funded. Like, I, I just don't see what the problem is with that research, which, like I said, the, the big picture is that we have this natural disposition to believe in God, and that would also apply to our ancestors. So, yeah, I mean, like, theistic belief is persistent and it's prevalent, and virtually all the beliefs that people have held, you know, that are widely held, you know, to the, to the same extent that theism is held, you know, the vast majority of people are theists. And according to Barrett, it seems like it's pretty much always been the case. So you change this to any other belief besides God, and this becomes the least controversial argument of all time, you know, like, you can just appeal to the fact that most people believe that dogs exist, you know, it's like, well, I mean, what are the odds? Like, even if you've never seen a dog or something like, you know, or if you've never been to Australia, like um, just the fact, I mean, the, maybe those aren't great examples, but the point is just that, um, you know, the persistence and prevalence of theistic belief is evidence for theism, mm -hmm. you know, like, because we have these generally truth tracking cognitive faculties and most of the beliefs that are held by most people throughout time are true. So I think people, that doesn't click with them because we tend to focus on the things that we got wrong in the past. Like, oh, people used to believe that the earth was the center of the solar system. And, oh, people used to believe this about the weather or about sickness or something. Yeah. And those are well known. And like, you know, we talk about them a lot. But the fact is, most of our beliefs are uh, kind of trivial, you know, so like we, we do hold uh I think people don't appreciate the vast number of beliefs that they hold. You know, it's just that most of them are trivial. You never think about them. Mm -hmm. You know, you never question them. Um, so people don't like it when I start listing really trivial beliefs that answer to this kind of description, right? So like mm -hmm. there's, you know, dogs exist and it's generally lighter in the daytime than at night. And when you drop things near the surface of the earth, they generally fall. Putting your hand in a fire hurts. Six is more than two. Um, you know, like all these, like this long, long, seemingly infinite list of trivial things. And they're just like, well, well, hang on. That's not like God exists. That's like a metaphysical conclusion or something. It's like, okay, well, we tend to believe the external world exists. That's a metaphysical conclusion. Mm -hmm. Um, 
Um, but the thing is, even though the beliefs are trivial, the process by which we came to hold them is not trivial at all. Like the, we have these cognitive faculties, like these evolved cognitive faculties and perceptual faculties that lead us to hold these beliefs. You know, that's how we come to hold these trivial beliefs about the world. It's because we have these generally truth-tracking perceptual and cognitive faculties. And guess what? Our generally truth-tracking perceptual and cognitive faculties overwhelmingly produce belief in God. So that's mm -hmm. evidence for God. <laughs> like it, you know, um, so people will get annoyed if you try to list a bunch of trivial beliefs and then talk about God. But the thing is, like I said, it's it's more about the process by which we came to hold those trivial beliefs, which is is not trivial at all. It has to do with this very complicated process um, that you know we barely understand about how we even developed these faculties to begin with. Um, but yeah, I mean, there are different ways you could go about this. I kind of like an inference to the best explanation where it's like, hey, what best explains the fact that most people believe in God? Well, that God exists would be a pretty good explanation of why most people believe in him. Mm -hmm. In the same way that why do most people believe the external world exists? Well, maybe it's because there's an external world. Um, yeah, so I mean, there are different ways you could go about this, but um, I guess I should I should pause here and, and see what you think at this point. Yeah, I mean, I think there's something obviously like that I agree with about this, like, like, obviously, I'm a theist. There's a lot of things you're going to say that I don't agree with here. Um, but, like, it really struck me when I was in college. Um, well, I feel so old saying when I was in college. Um, <laughs> shoot, I'm an adult now. Um, but, like, when I was in college, I wrote a paper for some class, and it was about, like, African religions and things like this. And I think a lot of times we have this idea that, like, African religions were mostly, like, um, animistic, like, tribalistic, things like this. Um, but across, like, many African religions, there's this very idea of, like, the concept of a supreme being, um, like, a being that was typically seen as all-powerful, um, typically seen as, like, a source of morality, things like this. There's differences than, like, a traditional theistic god. Like, in African, a lot of these religions, the supreme being, like, wasn't really involved in the day-to-day -day life. He just kind of, like, created the other beings and created the world or something like that. But it kind of hit me there. I was like, well, it seems like like even in Africa, like the theists, which, you know, a lot of times like that's not a place where theists go to argue that like monotheism is held all around the world. Um, there seems like there's some form of monotheism, even if it's not like something that like the evangelical going to church tomorrow might agree with. Um, but it seems like there is like that concept, that idea of God, like that crosses cultures and it's gone for thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of years. So that's what I was thinking about when you were writing when you were yeah. talking about this. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, Christians disagree about their model of God anyway. So the fact mm -hmm. that, you know, oh, well, maybe they don't have the exact right theology. Well, I mean, you probably don't have the exact right theology anyway. So, <laughs> you know, it doesn't really matter um, as long as you're in the general ballpark. But something else that's kind of interesting is even more prevalent than the belief in God is belief in the afterlife. Mm -hmm. um, that's, uh, th that's very prevalent throughout um, human history. So, you know, I'm not saying that this is like a I mean, don't, don't get the impression I'm saying this is like a knockdown argument for theism. I'm just saying if it were the other way around, it would obviously be evidence against theism. If almost no one believed in it, you know, like it would be yeah. evidence against it. Like, um, yeah. So, I mean, I think people just have this mistaken idea that it's just kind of irrelevant whether or not most people believe something. And that's just wrong. Mm -hmm. I mean, like it, it can be shown pretty easily that this is wrong, I think. Um yeah, I mean, first of all, you can just sort of list out a lot of our beliefs and realize that like, oh yeah, most of these are, are true. And second of all, we have generally truth-tracking cognitive faculties. So yeah, just the idea that like, oh, it's totally irrelevant if most people don't believe something. <laughs> like, <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's wrong. I mean, 
yeah, so it might be a little counterintuitive. I'm not sure why it's counterintuitive, but people really do push back and they want to talk about evolution. They want to talk about the things we've gotten wrong in the past. And like, it just gets kind of tiresome to me pretty quickly because um, I feel like this is all, I feel like I already answered that, you know, like it feels like it's something that's, I don't know why this argument gets such an amount of pushback, like from mm -hmm. theists and it, theists don't like this argument either, by the way, <laughs> nobody mm -hmm. likes this argument except for me. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I think that a good analogy is one that I heard from Trent Horn, where he said, you know, imagine that you're at a party and there's a loud noise and 95 out of 100 people at the party hear the noise and five people say they didn't hear anything. That's me. I'm one of the five people who didn't hear anything. So mm -hmm. like, and but the thing is, there's this widespread sound disagreement, you know, because this is the most common response to the uh, widespread theistic beliefs. Like, oh, well, actually, there's disagreement. Okay, well, um, imagine that, you know, these 95 people at the party who heard a sound, they don't agree on what the sound was. You know, there are kind of these general camps that think it was something trumpet-like, this other camp that thinks it's it was something kind of banjo-like, this other mm -hmm. camp that thinks it was like this, like one or two people who think it was a gunshot or something. But the thing is, almost everyone agrees there was a loud noise. And the disagreement is definitely weird. But almost everyone agrees there was something sound like that, you know, happened at the party. So it's like, who are you inclined to believe? The five people who didn't hear anything or the 95 people who heard something, even though they don't agree about what it was, it was something sound like. So that's kind of where I'm at with this argument where it's like, hey, like, 95% of people believe in something godlike. Do they agree about their model of God? No. Do they agree about like, you know, did he issue a revelation here or there? Was it the last revelation? No. They don't agree about all sorts of things. There is widespread disagreement, but they agree that there's something godlike, you know, and that's kind of like the stage of the case that we're at here. So yeah, it just seems like you know, does the fact of disagreement mean that there was no sound? I don't think so. Like, there's still probably something sound-like. Mm -hmm. So how would you, like, respond to this argument? Like, do you have a response where you kind of say, well, this is evidence for theism, but, you know, I have all these other arguments that we're to No, later. I don't really. I think this argument is fine. I think it raises the probability of theism. And then I'm just like, mm -hmm. I have to make a case for atheism, um, you know, that kind of overpowers this kind of argument. But the thing that, you know, me and some critics of the argument like Trent Horn agree on is that this is it can at least instill a dose of humility in the people who don't believe in God like me, where mm -hmm. it's like, OK, look, you're disagreeing with most people here. Like most people think you're wrong and that's not irrelevant. You know, like it, it's possible that you're a once in a generation genius who sees how everyone else has gotten it wrong except you. Yeah, that's possible. But like. Mm -hmm. Don't you see like how like absurd it is to like, you yeah. know, to, like it just seems like it takes a certain amount of, of hubris and, you know, that's not lost on me. Like, I feel like I have to rationally justify my case. Whereas if you're kind of agreeing with the consensus, then there's, it feels like there's less pressure on you, you know? So mm -hmm. like, um, but yeah, I think this argument might throw some people for a loop because it's sort of saying that like evidence of evidence is evidence. Like, if that makes sense, like, this isn't like direct evidence for theism. It's more mm -hmm. like the fact that so many people believe in theism is evidence for theism. So it's sort of like the same thing as the consensus of experts, where it's like, when you're appealing to the consensus of experts for something like climate change or something, you're not actually appealing to direct evidence for climate change. You're just saying like, hey, the fact that all these people who know what they're talking about believe in climate change is evidence for mm -hmm. climate change. And yeah. what I'm saying is, uh, you know, I'm not appealing to the consensus of experts. I'm just saying that, like, you know, 
saying that the fact that most people believe this, the fact that this belief is so persistent and so prevalent, um, that is evidence for this view. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I guess I, I just, it does make me feel a little more humble. It makes me more inclined to think that I'm missing something. You know, mm -hmm. the fact that almost everyone thinks that I'm wrong. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> well, hang on, am I missing something? Or have I just thought about this more? Like, you know, I, I think that most people don't actually think about atheism versus theism that much. Certainly yeah. not as much as people like you and me. <laughs> oh, definitely not. <laughs> so um, I think that maybe that explains it. Like, we're just kind of naturally inclined to believe in God. And then if mm -hmm. you think about it more, then maybe you'll be led away from God if you if you kind of interrogate the issue. Um, and a lot of people won't be led away from God either. But I think mm -hmm. that, you know, just naturally, most people kind of believe in God. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people that like interact with um, just in life who are by no means like practicing Christians or anything like this. But most of them would they'll say like, yeah, I, I believe in God or it's like there's something like they're not there's not many of them. And, you know, they're there, but they would sign up to like some sort of like atheism. So, yeah, I think there's something there. So the last argument, Emerson, is the experience of God. So what's going on here? Um, so there are different ways you can cash this out. I mean, the way that I've always liked this argument is... Um, it's something like, well, if you have an experience of God, you're sort of within your epistemic rights to believe in him, regardless of the evidence. Like, uh, you know, I don't want to put it too strong. It's not regardless of the evidence, but it, you've incurred a pretty high burden to show that someone's wrong if they've had this kind of like direct experience of God. Um, now, I don't know how many people have actually had this kind of experience, but the point is like, if you have a kind of direct experience of God, like, you know, how I seem to have this direct experience of you, then... Mm -hmm. You know, if someone tries to argue that Zach doesn't exist, it's like, that's pretty, you know, like, that's going to be pretty hard for me to believe. Um, mm -hmm. and if someone has an experience of God, then it's like, even if you show them evidence, they're just like, I, look, man, I've had an experience of this person. And what I'm, all I was trying to say is that's rational. That's not like irrational on their part where it's like, oh, well, you're just trusting your personal experience and not the evidence. And it's like, well, their experience is evidence. It's like really good evidence, actually. So mm -hmm. the analogy that I like to use is something from Thomas Nagel when he was talking to Alvin Plantinga, I think in the New York Review of Books, they were going back and forth about Plantinga's um, epistemology and a couple other things. And maybe this was Plantinga's analogy, but it was from either Nagel or Plantinga. And it's like a, you're in a courtroom, you've been accused of a crime, and you have like a, a memory of where you were on this day. And if you did commit the crime, which you have no memory of, um, you would have had to have been in this other place at this other time doing this thing you don't remember. And, you know, you, you, you're not given to uh, fits of amnesia or anything like that. Like, you're just you. You have these normally functioning cognitive faculties and they're accusing you of something you have no memory of. And in fact, you have a memory of that, like, conflicts with this thing. So now let's say, you know, they start bringing all this evidence and the evidence is like not bad. You know, it's like that you did commit the crime. You're like, well, look, we have this videotape and doesn't that kind of look like him? And you're like, that does kind of look like me. And like, and their, his fingerprints were at the scene. And you're like, okay. And then there are like eyewitnesses who picked you out of a lineup. And it's like, okay, so at what point would you start believing that you actually did commit the crime? You know, mm -hmm. it would take a lot of evidence, right? So someone who's sitting, uh, you know, like on the jury it might not take that much evidence. Like maybe what I just said would be enough to convince them that I did it and then I'm just lying or something, or I'm just mistaken or crazy or something. Um, but the point is, 
I've, because I have access to these experiences, you know, and other people don't, I have access to these like seemings, you know, these kind of memory seemings. Um, I am totally within my epistemic rights. And in fact, it's rational for me to believe that I didn't commit this crime on the basis of my personal experiences. Um, and uh, the, the more general point that I'm trying to make here is that the person who's on the jury, who's convinced of my guilt, they are rational. They are being rational because they've looked at the evidence and they're like, yeah, you probably did it, you know, and then I'm sitting here and I'm saying I didn't do it. Totally opposite conclusion. And I am also rational. <laughs> so <laughs> I feel like this is hard for people to grasp sometimes that like you can two people can come to opposite conclusions and neither one of them is really being irrational. Like neither one of them is in violation of their epistemic duties. And uh, that's fine. <laughs> like that's normal, mm -hmm. actually. So yeah. what I'm saying is not that this should convince so i don't know what experiences you've had but let's say you've had like a really profound direct experience of god um that shouldn't really convince me you know mm -hmm. but it should convince you and we're both fine <laughs> like neither one of us is like doing something that's like epistemically wrong so all i'm trying to say is that people who have had these religious experiences like they are totally within their epistemic rights they're totally rational in believing that God exists, um, the kind of evidence that they are bringing to the table that God exists is the same type of evidence that I bring to the table that um, you exist or that my cat exists. You know, the only thing that we're kind of lacking in this case is kind of intersubjective verification. But the thing is, a lot of people have experiences of God. Mm -hmm. So, you know, um, we sort of have that as well. But um, I'm, I'm trying to make two different points here. Basically, I think that theists who have had the religious experience of God, they are totally rational in, in believing in God. The second point I'm making is that we occupy different positions on this epistemic landscape. So it's not like if something is wrong, there's no evidence for it. You know, it's not like if something is incorrect, then uh, it's irrational to believe it. It could be totally justified and rational for you to hold a belief that turns out not to be true. So um, I'm just trying to argue for a little bit of like a ceasefire on some level here where it's mm -hmm. like, no, theists are not being irrational. Atheists are not being irrational necessarily. Um, and uh, yet we've come to opposite conclusions. You know, I mean, do you, you kind of get what I'm saying here? How we, we occupy different positions on this epistemic landscape. Like we have different evidence that's available to us. We have different intuitions, different life experiences. And um, there's like nothing that's wrong about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I w just did a conversation earlier th today, and I read a book by a, a Christian like theologian called Bethany Solarheader. I never know how to say her last name. She wrote a book called "Why Is There Suffering?" And usually, like when you get into like books that are on the problem of evil on either side, it usually starts with like a really like intense case of here's some horrific suffering. Mm -hmm. It's like either a here's how like God just like can't explain this. There's no way God could exist, or b like here's a plausible theodicy that could explain this. And like the way she approached her book was, is she did kind of like a choose your own adventure book where it's like, hey start with where you're at your, your life experiences and go from there. Like maybe you think God exists. Maybe you're like, God exists, but he's not loving. Maybe you think God doesn't exist. And from there we can kind of create your own path and trying to explain like, why is there suffering in this world? Um, it's a really good book and something to think about because I think when we get to the experience of God, we have to recognize a similar thing that we all kind of come from different spots. Um, some of us may have had like intense religious experiences. Some of us may have not. Some of us may have had like, horrific moments of suffering where like there's no way there could be a god and we have to recognize mm -hmm. that um and realize like you know like we're rational um, like both sides are rational and i guess there's not just two sides here but i think we recognize that and it, it allows for a lot of progress and 
it's very freeing to realize like even if someone doesn't sign up for something that Zachary Seckler signs up to in terms of like my Christian worldview, like they're still rational and disagreement with me. Like I don't, I don't have to like go to war defending every little point or else my like entire life is in shambles. So yeah. no, that's a much better way of saying what I was trying to say. Like, um, yeah, I think that people can, you know, cause I was just arguing with, um, inspiring philosophy about this and mm-hmm. he seemed to be under the impression that like, if you believe if something is wrong, then there's no evidence for it which is crazy like but in he, I mean this was just on twitter so i mean you know it, it, yeah just take it with a grain of salt because you know twitter the hub of like the out. most rigorous intellectual debates <laughs> in the history of the world exactly um yeah so the point is like even if something is wrong even if theism is wrong there could still be evidence for it and even if atheism is wrong there could still be evidence for it and that aside we all have like in an uneven access to the evidence you know like we all have like different uh things that are available to us that could rationally lead us to different conclusions. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, people can come to literally opposite conclusions. Like people can have experience. This was in the context of the meager moral fruits argument. So like people can have experiences with Christians and atheists where they're just like, you know, just every atheist I've met is just like mean as a snake. And like, I just, <laughs> it just seems like there are these, you know, like being a Christian does kind of make you a nicer person and someone else can have the experience. That's exactly the opposite where they're like, you know, I've, I know lots of atheists. I know lots of Christians and I've just had like pretty uniquely terrible experiences with Christians, which is kind of weird if there's this like transformative power of Christ and like, you're supposed to uh, be noticeably different from the people who uh, don't have the Holy Spirit or who aren't following Christ. And um, yeah, like there's supposed to be this noticeable difference between Christians and non-Christians. So if people based on their life experiences think that like, hey, I think atheists and Christians, they're just kind of the same. You know, it's not even that one group is better than the other one. It's just like, you know, I know lots of Christians, I know lots of atheists, and it seems like people are just kind of people. And, you know, there's, there's not really like a significant difference you know, well, Christianity seems to predict that there would be this kind of significant difference. So the fact that people are just kind of people is um, some evidence against Christianity. And uh, he seemed to be saying that, well, why couldn't the Christian argue that they think Christians are better than non-Christians? And I was like, they can. <laughs> mm-hmm. they can, you can if, if that's your good faith conclusion that you've come to, then it's totally possible for you to in good faith, based on the evidence available to you, come to one conclusion, while I, in good faith, on the basis of the evidence available to me, come to a different conclusion. That's mm-hmm. fine, you know? Yeah. So anyway. Yeah. No, I think that's great. And I think it's a great way of what you said of trying to show like the person-based nature of like, mm-hmm. you know, like arguments and things like that. So one more thing on the good side, yay, atheism, and then we'll get to the bad side, atheism. Um, <laughs> so in the beginning, you hinted at like the most plausible form of Christianity, Emerson. So mm-hmm. in your view, what is the most plausible form of Christianity? Um, so this started out as kind of a game, like with uh, relay theology, kind of asking, we have this like, if, if you're an atheist, they'll say, so what do you think is the most plausible form of theism? You know, mm-hmm. um, so uh, they sort of like started it off in me where I was trying to think about, you know, OK, I, I don't really buy into to any form of Christianity, but given the problems that bother me the most. So at first I went with Calvinism <laughs> because I was like, well, they buy into predestination, which I think is kind of unavoidable. And um, at least they just bite the bullet. You know, at least they just admit it. And, uh, you know, so that didn't last very long because I think that it's, you know, 
you can't really believe in a good God who's like predestining people to hell. That's <laughs> kind mm -hmm. of crazy. Like he's just, he's merciful. Mm -hmm. He's good. He's loving. And then he's just kind of like stamping you, you know, it's not even your fault. Like he's just, he's like, yeah, you're going to be tortured forever and you're going to have eternal bliss. Like that's insane. You know, <laughs> that's a, mm -hmm. that's an, it's a wild worldview, but I thought like, at least they just embrace the predestination, you know? Um, Cause it seems kind of unavoidable to me because people have, um, and there's this unfair distribution of evidence, you know, and there's this unfair, unequal distribution of ability to assess the evidence. And there's this unequal distribution of interest in even looking into this at all. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, depending on the time and place that you're born in, you might not uh, believe kind of rationally, you know, and it seems like pretty much every form of Christianity, most of them, at least um, your beliefs play some kind of role in what happens to you like eternally. <laughs> um, so I think that's uh, a pretty bizarre criterion to um, sort of dole out like eternal punishment or eternal bliss. So this, these kind of soteriological issues weigh pretty heavily on me. And it turns out they weigh pretty heavily on some Christians too. They're called universalists. So like there are these universalist Christians like David Bentley Hart or Keith DeRose who say things that sound like they could have come out of my mouth, honestly. Like I'm, I'm reading one of David Bentley Hart's books right now, um, That All Shall Be Saved. And he's talking about the Christian story of the world, if it's the case that people are kind of sent to this everlasting realm of torment or even just annihilated, you know, eternally separated from God in that way. Um, and just trying to make it all cohere. And he agrees with me where he's like, you can't make this cohere. It, it literally is incoherent. It's morally and rationally incoherent. And I'm just like, yeah. And then he's just like, but that doesn't mean Christianity is rationally incoherent because there's this soteriological view that does make all these things cohere. You know, God's justice, his goodness, his love, and our eternal fate. You know, so I think there is a way of making these things cohere. Like you can at least make it coherent. So mm -hmm. I think that that requires universalism. So it's not that you'd reject belief in hell. There's still a hell, but it plays a kind of purgatorial role. You know, mm -hmm. like you go there and it's kind of this place of moral purification um, before you, you know, enter into the presence of God or something like that. And it's not like you're, you know, physically tortured until you submit or something. It's like this, mm -hmm. uh, like, yeah, it plays this kind of purgatorial role. So for me, the most plausible form of Christianity is it, it a lot... I think your soteriological view has the potential to implode the internal coherence of your worldview. So um, I think that conditional immortality and eternal conscious torment, they just kind of implode the moral and rational coherence of Christianity. Like the story makes no sense to me. It's, it's literally impossible for me to believe it. And it's been really strange, honestly, to hear Christians say the same exact thing that I just said. Like mm -hmm. it's been kind of, surreal in some ways to like hear Christians say things that I said when I was like a teenager, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. and things that I'm saying, you know, still now. So, uh, yeah, I think that universalist Christianity that has hell as kind of a purgatorial role where all are eventually saved in the end. I think that that can help avoid problems of soteriological confusion where people don't agree about how to get salvation and problems where, you know, we've got this, uh, sort of, geographic um uh like powerful predictor for which religious beliefs you tend to adopt you know like um people who are born in the middle east are a lot less likely to become christians people who are born in the united states are a lot less likely to become muslims um 
so the only point there is that there's this like kind of unfair distribution of evidence and this like kind of unfair distribution of ability to assess the evidence. So universalists kind of just move, remove this piece where it's like, yeah, whichever beliefs you come to hold, like those play a pretty significant role in determining whether you have eternal bliss or um, something much, much worse. Mm-hmm. So I think that that actually rescues the at least coherence of the story of like a, an unsurpassably great being of perfect love who wills that all shall be saved. Um, mm-hmm. Like, I think that if you adopt universalism, then that help, then that at least, at least makes it coherent. The other important piece to this, I think is um, something that CS Lewis and Eleanor Stump convinced me of, which is that in order to have a relationship with God, you don't actually have to have an explicit belief in God. So mm-hmm. this is, it sounds kind of weird, but it's, yeah, it kind of, seems to follow straightforwardly from like a pretty plain reading of scripture. And like mm-hmm. I said, you can find it in like the fiction of CS Lewis and stuff. And it's defended explicitly by Eleanor Stump. It's just the idea that you can be in a relationship with God and not actually know it. Um, so like this would help a lot with the problem of like religious discord and religious diversity, including atheists. So like um, it's not to say that all paths lead to God. That's not the point. Uh, that's you know christianity is still an exclusivist religion it's just that you can have a relationship with god with the true god without um you know ever uttering the noise jesus you know Mm -hmm. like so the the point is just like you know in first john 4 god is like identified with love itself like you know in every which way it could not be (laughs) like it really didn't want like there's really no room for uh misinterpreting it there like it's, it just says god is love and it says it every which way so you like really get the point like no god is is love and you know traditionally god is considered to be identical with the good itself um so eleanor stump's point and c.s lewis's point is just that look you can be pursuing the good and um serving the highest virtues of love like without really knowing um anything about christianity you know, so and like you can be doing things in the name of Christianity and not pursuing the good. And so this is where, you know, Matthew 25 actually makes a lot of sense. You know, the part with the sheep and the goats, where it seems like there are all these people who think that they're Christians, you know, who think that they're followers of Christ. And Jesus is like, no, you're not. Um, and it seems like the converse is also true. Like there are people who think they are Christians who are not. And it seems like there are people who don't think they are Christians who are if that makes sense. Um, so like people who are following God who, uh, you know, don't have explicit knowledge that that's what they're doing. Um, so Eleanor Stump defends this CS Lewis defends this where at the end of, um, something with Aslan or whatever. And then like the Satan character, I think is Tash or maybe he's another last battle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like he, uh, so there's this guy who was like a Tash worshiper and he's like, uh, you know, so it's the end of history, you know, Aslan has like won the battle and everything. And this guy is like, I'm completely screwed because I've been a Tash worshiper my whole life. And um, Aslan kind of like welcomes him. And he's just like, I've been a Tash worshiper my whole life. And he's like, you know, every time that you served the good or, you know, the highest ideals of love, like you were doing that in my name, whether you knew it or not. And, um, you know, it wasn't for Tash. Like, even though you thought you were doing it in Tash's name, you were actually doing it in my name. And every time someone does something evil, even if they do it in my name, they're not doing it in my name. They're doing it in Tash's name because evil belongs to Tash and like goodness belongs to me. And then the guy's like, oh, so does that mean that you have many names and there are like many paths to you? And Aslan is like, no, absolutely not. <laughs> like, you know, so 
this isn't to uh, undermine exclusivism or to say that like, you know, all paths lead to the same place. Like, it's not like that, you know, it's just saying that, you know, you can be pursuing the good. So you can be in relationship with God and not know it. You know, to me, that seems like the most straightforward reading of Matthew 25. Like there are people who think they're following God who aren't. And there are people who don't realize they're following God who are. So mm -hmm. I think that goes a long way towards helping with divine hiddenness and um, religious confusion and religious disagreement. And um, yeah, I think that universalism just really helps the whole story kind of cohere. Um, mm -hmm. If we're talking about an unsurpassably great being of perfect love who wills that all shall be saved and then gives people this unequal access to evidence and ability to assess the evidence and, you know, they're put in this time and place and then through no fault of their own, they end up not having the right beliefs and then they're tortured for all of time. That's impossible for me to believe. It seems like morally and rationally incoherent. So, yeah, I think that... I think there's a version of Christianity that makes sense. I, I don't think there's a name for it. And by the way, if I were to convert to this version of Christianity that kind of has those like bare features that I just named, I'm pretty sure most Christians would say that I'm not a Christian and they would say I'm not a real Christian and uh, not really want to claim me anyway. Mm -hmm. So uh, I don't know what would happen even if I were to convert to this kind of universalist form of Christianity that, um, you know, like I said, it's still exclusivist, but it can give people the impression that it's not exclusivist, even though I think mm -hmm. it's plainly scriptural. Um, but yeah, like I said, I'm pretty sure I would, they would, a lot of people would hit the uh, not a real Christian button pretty quickly mm -hmm. if I were to uh, convert to this form of Christianity. But I think that that's kind of the most plausible form. Mm -hmm. I think that's something Christians do too much, just press the not a real Christian button when they, they've come into views that they're uncomfortable with. And obviously, like for me, like I'm a Christian, like there is like an orthodoxy that like must be followed, but like you got to be very careful and like, like just saying they're, they're not a Christian. Um, so yeah, um, we're now we're in Emerson and like everyone would be like, why aren't you with this dude? Like, come on, just jump on the train and become that Christian. Or I guess according to some that fake Christian. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah. what, what's keeping you, what's holding you back um, from just like embracing theism, I guess, generally? Well, I mean, the thing that's holding me back from embracing the kind of theism that's like more widely subscribed, you know, like mm -hmm. it's sort of the reasons that I just outlined. Like, I think the story is kind of morally and rationally incoherent. Um, once you factor in eternal conscious torment <laughs> or eternal separation, um, the whole thing just kind of like decoheres. So, you know, that's why I'm not that's that, you know, that actually has a lot to do with why I'm incapable of believing the story. And the thing is that view is way more popular than stuff that David Bentley Hart defends. Um, but if you're talking about why am I not a theist, you know, with the kind of plausible version of Christianity that I just sketched out. Mm -hmm. um, so, okay, forget about the, the vast majority of Christians, just forget about them. What about this version of Christianity that kind of makes sense to you? And that I admitted, Hey, this might be true. You know, like this, this might actually be the case. Um, the thing, pretty much the only thing that keeps me away from that form of Christianity that I sketched out is the problem of evil. Like, um, so I have lots of objections to theism depending on your soteriological views. <laughs> um, but if you happen to accept those kind of fringe views that I just laid out, I don't know what the Eleanor Stump C.S. Lewis view is called exactly, but whatever that view is and universalism, you know, so most Christians reject those and uh, the version of Christianity that accepts those and, you know, that I've constructed in my elaborate mind palace is, um, mm -hmm. it's just the problem of evil, basically. Like I, you know, having an eternal afterlife of a generally positive character for, for all conscious beings, that certainly helps with the problem of evil. You know, it makes some of the suffering in our world seem, uh, less significant because this isn't just the end of the story for the 
hundreds of millions of years of animal predation, you know, all these animals that suffered and died in horrific ways for seemingly no reason, um, and ways that totally could have been avoided and contributed to nothing at all. <laughs> like, um, you know, so it doesn't seem as significant, but it's still just like wildly flies in the face of what you'd expect if a perfect being was ultimately responsible for the natural order. You know, the natural order is kind of horrific, you know, like it's, it makes more sense to me to say like, oh, you know, that apparently morally random natural order, it is kind of morally random, mm. as opposed to saying there's like this moral rationale behind the suffering that we see in the world. So, you know, like, I guess that's what it comes down to for me is, is this works against like all versions of, of uh, m like perfect being monotheism is like just the idea that there's not really a good rationale behind the kind degree and distribution of suffering in the world. You know, in other words, there's not really a successful theodicy. And that really just prevents me from finding this plausible, you know, this, this theistic worldview. It's just too good to be true. Like it, it, it if our world was different, then I, I could, pro I could be a theist, you know, like if we lived in the world that young earth creationists describe um, where the earth is 6,000 years old and there hasn't really been that much animal suffering. And it's all because of the literal fall, you know, like that's, there was this literal event called the fall and then we ushered it. Like that's not a terrible theodicy. I mean, it, it just relies on all these um, to put it mildly implausible scientific and historical views. But um, you know, it, it, once you bring in universalism and if there hasn't been that much, you know, animal suffering, you know, because <laughs> the whole universe is only 6,000 years old. Um, you know, what I'm saying is if the world was different, then I would be a theist. But in the world that we live in, it's just very hard for me to make sense of the idea of like a perfect being being responsible for for the world that I see. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, anything else, Emerson, you want to bring up before it makes sense to me, but I'm obviously, you know, I'm still a theist, so you didn't get me at Emerson. Um, uh, anything else you want to talk about, like, before we start to wrap up here? I feel like I've been talking almost this entire time. I feel bad. Um, I've just been like, it's just been a fire hose of um, information. You haven't. Welcome to Emerson's intellectual dumping ground. We just dumped some of his thoughts. So that's. <laughs> what do you think? I mean, like, do you like just to like hash quickly, like go through those arguments that we brought up, like psychophysical yeah. harmony and widespread theistic belief. Like, mm -hmm. do you, um, you know, I mean, where, where do you fall? Like, where would you sort of rank those arguments, I guess? Yeah. So the existence of consciousness is an interesting one. Cause I mean, I think you can't get around the theistic side of like, it's, it's one on theism. I do think I might be a little more, I push it a little bit more than you do. Cause you talked about how, like, you think um, the entailments of naturalism and I kind of wonder like, what does naturalism actually entail? And I would say nothing. So I do think that you could get a little bit more out of it than you do though. I would say, I don't think it's like the best argument the world's ever seen. Um, yeah. Sick of physical harmony. I'm still pretty like figuring it out. So I really have yeah. like, I'll plead the fifth on that one. Um, widespread theistic belief. I think I fall on a, like the line where I think it's a really good argument. Um, like I like the analogy that like Trent Horn, you talked about that he brought up. Cause I thought of like similar ones. Um, where it seems like most people across time have believed in God and not a lot of people have like said there is no God. So like there's something very strong about providing evidence for some sort of theism there. And then the experience of God is an interesting one because I think it's good. I wonder, you know, you have the issue of like contradictory experiences. So if you're going to get into like an exclusivistic, um, it, not even like, like you can be a Christian exclusivist. Like you talked about like Lewis or some of these people and allow for like experiences in other religions and still have like Christian exclusivism. But if you're going to say that like, as a Christian, 
all the Christian experiences are like God, but all the like other experiences are like demonic. Um, mm. That's a hard thing to go through. And like, I'm not like against that idea, but it's just, it's going to get tricky. Like it's going to be tricky if you use that as like an evidential argument in favor, especially you can't really use it in favor of religion. I think maybe in favor of God, you might be able to. Um, so that's where I'm currently at. I think the best one is the widespread theistic belief. And then I guess with like the Christian stuff, I mean, I'm not like totally against eternal conscious torment, though I do find it super hard to see. Um, a lot of the pictures of it are like, I'm like, that makes no sense to me. The only yeah. picture I could like maybe see is like, if you read like The Great Divorce and C.S. Lewis, like mm-hmm. something like that, maybe could strike a tone. Um, eternal conscious um, inconvenience or something. It's like yeah. eternal conscious mild irritation. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. not really Well, I mean, the way Lewis describes it i'm sure you, are you familiar with lewis's description of like i've, I've just heard it secondhand from a yeah. couple of people who've told me about it yeah so it's like you know like hell's a world where you can kind of just get wherever you want and like hell's locked from, from the inside um so it's not like god's like ha- like created like this big torture chamber or anything like that um i mean there's some plausibility but then you wonder like if there's a perfect being like why would he create that world like where you could have a world where like evil is actually like defeated um and it seems to me like if evil is going to be defeated like you need at least like annihilationism and like obviously I'm a hopeful universalist. Like, I don't want anyone to go to hell. Like, oof, I can't imagine doing that. Well, um, why do you Why do you hope for it? Because it's, it seems like the best possible scenario where everyone becomes everyone and everything mm-hmm. is reconciled to God. Like, what sounds better than that? Like, to me, like, that seems like, the, and I have right. issues, you know, there's like biblical data and things like that. But to me, like, just like thinking about it, like just off the cuff, like to me, that's the most hopeful scenario is to hope everyone is reconciled to God. So, well, yeah. I mean, it seems like if you're, if you're a hopeful universalist, then you're conceding that it's the best possible outcome. And, Mm -hmm. but then you're worried that this perfect being is not going to bring about the best possible outcome. You're like, Mm -hmm. Oh, well, I mean, yeah, he's a perfect being, but we all know what he's like, you know, it's like, no, if it's (laughs) that bad bad side on like once a week. So, you know, he's getting out. I mean, if it's the best possible outcome, then it seems like it's, you should be more confident that God would bring it about i mean like why would he bring about something less than what he could bring about i mean it seems like it's within his power to save everyone like mm-hmm. that that whole idea of like hell being locked from the inside like that just makes no sense to me because if it's really terrible then you would want to leave <laughs> and like if the idea is well look they just won't submit to god or they just they won't submit to the good or something like that well if god is a perfect being then all it really takes is him revealing himself to like people maybe in different ways or like to different extents. But if God is the way that he's described, then he's totally irresistible. So all it really takes is God revealing himself to these people and they would happily, willingly enter into a relationship with him. So it's within his power to save everyone. And we know that he wills that all shall be saved and it's the best outcome. So it just seems like, well, of course this is what would happen. Like the idea that hell is locked from the inside. It's like, why? I mean, first of all, if, if hell is locked from the inside and it's kind of torturous, then that that's a bad idea. We shouldn't let it's insane to allow to will yourself to be tortured. You know, you're not really rationally willing your best interests at that point, And it's wrong to let um, insane people have themselves tortured, you know, which you'd have to be to lock the door from the inside in hell. And even mm-hmm. if it's like it's not so torturous, but it's still, you know, it's just not great or, or whatever Lewis was talking about. It's like well, look, it's within God's power to save everyone just by revealing himself because he's this totally irresistible being. He's perfect love and goodness itself. Like all it takes is having a a more accurate understanding of God. And you wouldn't see it like how Christopher Hitchens sees God like as big brother or something. Like Mm -hmm. the more accurate your understanding of God becomes if God is literally like a perfect being of of love. 
then the more you came to understand God, the more you would really want to be in his presence and like in a relationship with God. So it seems like it's within God's power to save everyone and he wants everyone to be saved. So, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely something there. And like, I wouldn't like, if someone asked me like where I'd stand on like eschatology and stuff right now, it'd probably be like some form of like annihilationism and hopeful universalist or something like that. Um, but I mean, I do think like it's like with just defending eternal conscious torment, which is super hard to do. <laughs> like, I'm not like, oh, this is an easy view to defend by any means. Like, it's definitely really tricky. And I think, um, yeah, it's biblically, too. I think there's issues with it, a lot of issues with it. But I mean, you could say something like um, the story of like, say someone who's like a drug addict in this life. Um, surely they know that like not being a drug addict is like a better thing than like staying in the current state they are. But just by, by the way their nature is like they can't escape that. And I mean, you could appeal and say, look, God's a perfect being. He's unlimited. It's like, you know, it's not a totally analogous scenario, which I think there's something right about that. But for me, I just, I don't know. I, th- I still think there's something where you could have some form of eternal conscious torment um, and not, and like have it, like have a defense for it. But I don't know if it's how good it would be is my question. So that's why I'm not, that's why I don't hold the ECT. So, yeah. 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 It's just hard for me to make it work. I, I don't understand how, um. It just seems kind of bizarre, honestly. Like, mm-hmm. but yeah, it had a lot to do with me deconverting initially. It's just thinking about the story of Christianity. Like, if you just ask your average Christian, like, "Hey, uh, what's going on?" <laughs> like, with uh, mm-hmm. life on Earth and stuff. Like, the story for me is just like really hard to believe. And there have been some people who have done a decent job of kind of um, explaining why the story strikes so many atheists is as hard to accept. You know, like mm-hmm. um, people like Dan Barker. He has this one thing called like the Good News. And um, this like short story. And then there's a theoretic uh, Scott Clifton um, who um, has a thing, has this thing called God's checklist 2.0. Um, I don't think he would stand by some of these things because <laughs> they were made a long time ago, but um, I really like that video. I loved, you know, when I was first deconverting, especially because it's like, yeah, like this, this story, it just doesn't make any sense. It just like, it kind of decoheres when you, when you think about it. Um, but you have to, and you have to make all these weird theological moves, I think, to to make it uh, to make it fit. Like something you mentioned earlier about like uh, uh, religious disagreement. I I can't remember, but uh, yeah, I think that it's possible to answer these questions. You just have to kind of take these fringe positions, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of Christians will will not be very happy if you if you do this, and they're going to say that you're not a real Christian, and they're going to you know i mean obviously there is a scriptural basis for universalism you know like david bentley hart and like keith DeRose. they you know it's not like they're just ignoring the bible <laughs> like you know mm-hmm. they, they know their stuff but um yeah you know i think it's possible to defend but um psychophysical harmony i wanted to oh yeah you said you're still you're still working through that one um yeah it's I mean, mostly just too, because yeah. of like a lack of like understanding of psychophysical harmony like it's something i need to read about and listen to more about and yeah, yeah. So. No, no, me too. I mean, if I had a better understanding of it, I could probably give like a really cogent five minute summary of it instead of like being all over the place like crazy. But yeah, I'm still trying to understand it too. It's, I just yeah. think there's like a there there. Well, I mean, like when you talked about how like you're like, we're lucky that like our minds match with our physical behavior. Like I think like that's a very simple um, and good kind of way of like, yeah, it seems like mm-hmm. something's the case, like something's going on there, which makes sense of like, why do my mental states um, correlate with my behavior? But I mean, you know, it's just something that I have to think about more. So it's just hard right. to take a position on it. So um, what's well, been good? Anything else? I mean, we kind of covered everything. Um, I know you're a theist now, so mm-hmm. you can just admit it right now. And I can get like I can clickbait this and just get all kinds of like cool stuff going on. Yeah. So I'm ready. 
anytime. Yeah, I'm like I said, I'm I'm trying to take Christianity and theism, like I'm trying to like steal man. Like this is kind of like my uh, this is the last hurrah here, where I'm just like, okay, I really have to. I found this version of Christianity that actually might be true. You know, like it actually seems like it's way more plausible than the other versions, which I, I'm literally incapable of believing. But like, mm-hmm. um. So, and I've only started thinking about this recently, like in the last like several months or so. So I'm trying yeah. to be open to it. So, you know, I feel like I'm not really approaching this in good faith if ahead of time. I already know what the outcome is going to be, but I haven't really thought about universalism up until the last, you know, several months or so. And I've been reading about it and just trying to, you know, remain open and not be a non-resistant or not be a resistant non-believer, you know, like mm-hmm. I want to look into this like universalist form of Christianity with an open mind and be like, Hey, you know, I dismissed this when I was deconverting because I didn't take it seriously because no one I knew took it seriously. Like even annihilationism was way too like liberal, you know, when mm-hmm. I was like a Christian, like that wasn't taken seriously at all. And it, let alone this like universalist crap. And then like, you know, so, but you know, I, I just gradually became exposed to Christians who took it seriously. They're sincere Bible believing Christians, you know, and they, uh, mm-hmm. they're universalists. And um, so I, 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 and I have to admit, it does sidestep a lot of my objections. Like I just had a debate with uh, John Buck where I um, defend atheism. And, you know, like, look, universalism and like in the kind of Lewis Stump view that I was talking about, like it, it does kind of seriously diminish my case and leave me with almost mm-hmm. nothing but the problem of evil. And that's, yeah. that's basically it. So I'm trying to approach this universalist Christianity, you know, this kind of like my current investigated investigation approaching it with an open mind with the possibility that I might convert because if that's not a possibility, then why bother doing it if you're mm-hmm. not truly open? So no, I, I am looking into Christianity into universalist forms of Christianity. And I'm, there's a real possibility that I could become a Christian at the other side of this. Um, mm-hmm. But if this doesn't work out, I think I'm pretty much done with <laughs> thinking about <laughs> Christianity seriously, but mm-hmm. um, yeah. And then, like I said, on the other path, I'm, psychophysical harmony has kind of forced me into taking these kind of Nagel, type views more seriously about natural teleology where there is this kind of tendency towards states of value um mm-hmm. but not too strong because the natural world is pretty morally random so um that's mm-hmm. kind of where i'm at in my uh, journey at this particular moment but you know i'm just uh, i'm really glad you had me on and stuff um you're one of the uh, christian youtubers out there that i have like genuinely positive feelings towards and stuff and um, <laughs> you know, so, um yeah so i, I enjoy uh talking to you or in today's case talking at you uh for 90 percent of the time but um yeah no i i uh thanks for having me on and um we'll see where this goes but yeah thanks for coming on i really appreciate you because you're very it seems like through the courses you're very open you, it's not like you're really trying to sell anything to anyone you're just like kind of like here's where i'm at because i know probably maybe it's like some of your listeners like i listen to your i have such a weird how i listen to youtube videos and stuff but i listened to like a couple weeks ago your like episode on like free will and determinism from like four years ago or whatever. And I'm like, that is not the Emerson green. I listened to that from like now or the one I'm talking to right now. And it, it shows like, and I think it's good that stuff's there because it shows like for you. And I hope for people listening to me, you can see a similar thing. Um, like this is a journey. It's not like we have it all figured out and we spend the next hundred years. Um, well, if we live to hundred, that's kind of rough. Um, but like, it is like, we don't have it all figured out. Like we're very open and like saying like, Hey, this is our journeys. And like, for me, you talked about like how you growing up in church, like annihilation and, annihilationism and universalism were seen as like not even options. Mm-hmm. For me, like 
it wasn't pushed on me, but like my natural like assumptions growing up in like an evangelical world was like, yeah, those things are crazy. You can't believe that. Um, and like over time, like I've seen them as more and more plausible, like universalism, like philosophically to me, it makes a lot of sense. Um, theologically is where I have all my issues. And I know like David Bentley Hart has responded, you know, there's responses, but for me, that's when I have issues, but all to say like life's a journey and we're going to get it figured out. And like, you're okay sometimes. So, yeah. Oh, thank I'm you. Your channel is great. I love it. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it is a journey and like, you know, I have, you know, two, maybe even three beliefs that I currently hold that are not true. And I look forward to figuring out what they are, but. Well, I only have one. So you got to get it. You got to get your stuff together, man. Come on. Um, so, but yeah, it's been great, Emerson. Thanks for coming on. And your channel will just be literally added in this YouTube title, assuming YouTube wants to function when I upload this video and yeah, that's it. So Thank you for coming on and anything else you want to say about like what your future projects are, your endeavors or anything like that before we wrap up? No, I mean, I kind of covered where I'm, what I'm thinking about uh, these days and um, yeah, I mean, just on YouTube, I'm Emerson Green. And if you want to listen on podcast, I have um, counter apologetics and then I have Walden pod. So I, I started off just doing podcasts, you know, and then I eventually started uploading them to YouTube. Um, but yeah, counter apologetics is, you know, what it sounds like in Walden pod is where I talk about consciousness or, or whatever else, um, I want to. So yeah, that's where you can find me. Um, I'm on Twitter at Walden pod. And, um, earlier you said that, you know, I'm not out to sell anything and you can go to patreon.com slash counter, <laughs> um, where <laughs> you, know, you go to um, patreon.com slash adhering apologetics. So. <laughs> yeah. um. Well, it's been great, man. Thanks for coming on, and we'll talk after the broadcast ends. For everyone listening, thanks for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed this, and God bless. We'll see you next time.